Are you a big, are you a Fallon guy? Are you a, uh, do you watch late night shows? Um, no, in fact, I'm so excited now that it, they've all got podcasts uh, that I can, I mean, obviously, I, I never miss an episode of, of Jimmy Fallon. Of course. So. Who, who does? <laughs> obviously. <laughs> How could you? I, um, he was always, so I was there when that show, when we transitioned, when it went from late night to the Tonight Show. Mm-hmm. And I just, for a while, it was like the hottest show in America. Like the first like six months, that show was it, I, I, my mom has never been prouder of anything that I've done than like the first six months. We had a uh, we had Tina Fey on the show, and Tina Fey grew up uh, in Upper Darby, Pennsylvania, which is the same town that I was talking about earlier. We grew up in the same town, and uh, there's this famous pizza place in our town. I think every town has a famous pizza place, but like for whatever reason, this one Pika's uh, did pizza in a very specific way. They like cheese. Uh, cheese goes on the bottom, sauce goes on top. And she was doing an interview with him, and I brought her pizza. Uh, I, I had the pizza brought out. Jimmy obviously presented her with it uh, because she'd been working on the Muppets too, and the food was terrible. And her whole interview was going to be about how like the food was terrible at this, whatever, where they shot Muppets too. And uh, pizza came out, and it was like, Obviously, the most like forgettable segment possible for ninety nine point nine percent of the population. But in my hometown, getting Pika's Pizza on the Tonight Show was the biggest deal, and my mom got mentioned by the priest at that Sunday's homily. Like my mom got a shout out from the priest about Pika's Pizza getting mentioned, and one of my brothers will have to be elected senator to pass me based on my mom getting <laughs> mentioned directly by the priest because of like, I like meanwhile, like all I did all day was write dick jokes and then had some pizza brought out. And then a priest is like, look, look, look at what this guy's up to. So yeah, I missed that show. I feel like that's such a wonderful anecdote that that should just be the start of the podcast. Uh-oh. All right. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. If, if that's comfortable, it could not be the start of the show. No, absolutely. <laughs> My uh, guest today is uh, Luke Xavier Xavier Cunningham. Am I saying that right? Yes, Luke Xavier Cunningham, the maximum Catholic name that my parents could give me. <laughs> <laughs> So you grew up, uh, I'm sorry, what was the name of the town with Pika Pizza? Oh, in it? Upper Darby, Pennsylvania. Upper Darby, Pennsylvania, the uh, town, like you could literally throw a rock into Philadelphia, and we often did. Uh, it was right at the bottom of the street, and uh, yeah, it's like a, it's a fun little inner ring suburb town, very working class, very middle class. When I was a kid, I used to wear red all the time. I was, a, I was a bit of a, a chunker, and I would wear red all the time, and everybody called me Red Delicious. That was my name when I was in, like, <laughs> seventh and eighth grade. I was wearing starter jackets, umbros. It was 1994. You were probably there. You remember that? Did you have umbros? Did you have starter? Uh, I had umbro shorts. You had umbro shorts? Yeah. Did you have a starter jacket? I didn't, but I had several friends who did. Okay. I was, aspired to starter jacket life. You had pro player? <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, my brother got a pro player jacket and I was so pissy about it that my dad took me and bought me a starter jacket 
<laughs> I don't think he's ever forgiven me. <laughs> so how do you get uh, from small town Pennsylvania all the way to the Tonight Show? What's the were you headed straight for television writing from the start, or what was the? Um, so I I uh, I went to college. I went to uh, Brown University on a big pile of financial aid. Uh, so I graduated from there and, but when I was there, I worked as a, uh, I was in the sketch comedy group and like improv comedy group. And after I graduated, I was a teacher for a little while, which is essentially just stand up without jokes or punchlines. You're just kind of, you're talking from bell to bell. You've got to find a way to keep their attention. And then I transitioned from, uh, being a teacher into doing a lot of stand-up and writing sketch at uh, Upright Citizens Brigade. I moved to New York and I was doing that for a really long time and then my for like five years and then uh, my teammate from college and I we wrote uh, a pilot called Red Delicious which uh, was about me when I was a chunky kid in middle school and uh, that Fox bought it and developed it and almost made it. And then, so I moved to LA and then when I was in LA, I was submitting to other stuff and just writing joke packets. Like that's what you have to do as a comedy writer and a comedian, you're constantly writing joke packets. And I submitted for Fallon when it was late night with Jimmy Fallon. So this was like 2012 and uh, I got hired. And it was actually, I'd worked on Robert Smigel's Night of Too Many Stars. Do you know who Robert Smigel is? Oh, Saturday Night Live uh, cartoon for guy, the right? for the uh, is he Triumph also or am I thinking yes, somebody Triumph he is Triumph but for uh, our middle school audience he is uh, the Dracula Vacation movies which one's that the animated Dracula oh I have not seen animated Dracula it's definitely a series Adam Sandler voices Dracula. Oh, I know what you're talking about, but they, I was a little too old above they're the target audience, and they're a little too old for my kids. Listening right now, they are yelling the name of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Being like, oh, you two dummies. Um, Hotel Transylvania. Nailed it. Oh, Got there. Yeah. Well, three or number yeah. four, aren't they? Yeah. So Smigel wrote Hotel Transylvania, and he runs this thing called Night of, Night of Too Many Stars, which is like a telethon, but it's a fake telethon. It's making fun of telethons. And I produced... Uh, bits i was a writer and was producing bits on it and uh one of the the head writer suggested to jimmy fallon's head writer hey you should uh talk to this guy because he writes jokes for men <laughs> and, uh because i was like it just like he writes very manly jokes and i was like okay whatever that means and i ended up uh submitting a packet they felt like they needed a manly joke writer at the time so uh, I got hired and was working on Late Night with Jimmy Fallon until it became uh, The Tonight Show. And while I was there, I started working on this book. So you come in and you're, I mean, you're six and a half feet tall and they're looking for somebody to write manly jokes. That's got to help. <laughs> I know. It does. You know, he would, he would do our annual review. They would like go through and they would talk about it. And that you, you would write every day, you would write like 50 jokes total like you would have 40 due by 11 a.m you probably end up writing another 10 more and if two of those got on the show you were thrilled because you were constantly keeping joke count because like your contract is up every three months it's a it's it's such a weird 
competitive environment. But I, I mean, I loved it, but it is like very uh, produce if you're going to stick around here. And I, uh, oh, sorry, I lost my, tra- I lost my train of thought. About Hunger Games, but for jokes. <laughs> oh, yeah, Hunger Games, but for jokes. And I, I'm sorry, I, we're talking about the Just writing. The, the of, you had to write 40, 50 jokes per day. Oh, I'm sorry. So you're talking about being very tall. And at the end of our, our annual review, I would get like, if I got two jokes on, I was telling Jimmy this. I was like, if I get two jokes on a show, Jimmy, I walk home. I feel like I'm 10 feet tall. And he was like, well, Luke, that's because you're 10 feet tall. And I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> of course. Like, Fair enough. So yeah. what does, uh, we're going we're to transition, uh, talk about uh, how this uh, applies. I assume there's there's some carryover to, to writing middle grade in your new book, Leo Inventor Extraordinaire, uh, oh. which came out here uh, April 6th. But what uh, what does that morning look like? That writing morning, forty or fifty jokes. Are you just walking around an office with a tennis ball like on a TV show? Or oh, <laughs> no, you know what? It is it is like a it is an anxious library when you go in there. It is just six people all cranking through and trying to get like when you're writing late night jokes, the first angle always occurs to you. Like what's what's going to be like the uncle joke? Like the most obvious joke is going to come at you so you you just throw that one away and then you have to like continue to dig down until you find like a very funny take on it and then hopefully it is something that is not already blown up on twitter you know what i'm saying like you just kind of like uh i'm sure that that joke or the canal the canal or the the suez canal and the boat blocking it and the fact that that boat was no longer blocking it. I'm sure the joke that you don't want to submit in your packet is, uh, "Oh, we would talk about that ship, but that ship sailed." Brr. Like it's that joke that you have to just scrap immediately <laughs> until you find the best possible take. So, in applying that, I, in applying that to writing a uh, a book, like you would just work so much at uh, as a late night writer, because so much, so much of your your work is just frankly like not funny enough to appear on the show or whatever, just doesn't make the cut. So you just scrap all of that and you continue to dig down and find the best possible angle, and that's really the same way you go about writing a book, or at least it's the way I did in terms of like the mental labor of trying to. Uh, like I feel like a a book and a long narrative is just a huge machine you know like it's just a big machine and jokes are just like little machines like two sentences set up and then the punchline it has to be something you're not counting on hearing and you kind of do the same thing with a book except it's just a way bigger machine the second you tinker with something in the beginning, you are setting off this chain reaction that tinkers with like 30 other things down the line. So, uh, yeah, it's just a, the writing process is uh, just as labor intensive, but you kind of have to work in a different way. 
Is it just you sitting in front of a, a computer or a pad of paper? Oh, man. So I would start every day. I would set a timer for 25 minutes. It's called a Pomodoro session. And I would take my phone and I would throw it as far away from me as I possibly could get it and would just focus on having nothing but a pen and paper. And I would just free write for 25 minutes. And that was usually, again, it's like the Fallon packet. 85% of that is just garbage. Just, just <laughs> flushing whatever I'd been thinking about the night before. But that in that like 15% ish, I could find something that was going to be, uh, that was going to be imbued into whatever I was writing that day. And that would kind of be the framework. And then I would just, the next Pomodoro session would be uh, on the laptop. But the first one was always 25 minutes of free writing. And I took that from a guy who uh, posted about that on Twitter. It was a guy named Gavin Purcell. He's like, I've been starting every day with these 25 minute free writes. Like I make myself write on just a pen and paper. And uh, yeah, he was like very pleasantly surprised by how, how uh, much good work he seemed to be getting out of it. And so this is all for, this is for Leo that you're doing 25 minutes. And then how long do you go on and do the actual uh, sitting and, 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 and typing? Or does that come into it? Oh, yeah. I'm, so the first one is just pen and paper. And then the other 25 minute sessions are, I mean, dude, I would love to tell you I was I was doing like eight to 10 a day. But it's really like you you go when you can go. I have a uh, we have a 19 month old son. So like he would nap and I would just wail on a laptop. It looked like animal drumming for like the 50 minutes I could hopefully get in before he would be up again. And uh, yeah, I mean, if I could get like four or five of those sessions in a day, I would just be adding a little bit more to the machine, just constantly building it up and building it up and building it up. And then you, uh, so like I, I had pre-sold the book based on half of a writing sample. So like half the book was the writing sample, which is a very long writing sample. And then my, like, I, I got an editor, uh, her name's uh, Jackie Alberta. And like, dude, the, after you've just been like swimming in your own head for so long with writing a story, to have someone else where you can finally outsource some of those ideas and have them be like, this, is good this is good this is good this doesn't work this doesn't work was just so vital and it made me way more efficient because you're like you're no longer guessing now you have someone like you're no longer guessing like i think this makes sense to me like i think this is a fun narrative and to have someone who is professional at telling you like oh this sucks but this is good is just it's it just made me work so much more cleanly like it was just way more efficient than kind of guessing. Yeah. How often are you getting that feedback? Is that weekly, monthly? Oh, I would I would probably send her a draft. Um, you know, I would send her punch ups like every few weeks. I think she would tell you she was pleasantly surprised by uh, how how often I met deadline. I'm really patting myself on the back here, but I was definitely, I, maybe it's, I just revealed how surprised I was that I met Deadline, because I was like, hey, here are the pages. 
And I don't know, like that, I, I guess I got so excited to meet the deadline because she would read them and, and tell me like, hey, this works, this works, this doesn't work. I used, uh, I had my, my aunt who used to run an English department, a high school English department at Quincy Braintree High School, uh, this public school outside Boston. And she read a few of the first initial drafts and they were terrible. And she was, she was so uh, kind about it, but I could tell, I was like, oh, I can't have Aunt Mary read another draft. She's, she's, she's gonna, she literally, she'd read two and she was like, some of this just, you really need to sit down and figure it out uh, beforehand. And yeah, but man, when I finally got an editor, it really makes working so much more efficient. So she's reading that first half, which is the right example you're going to go on uh, to sell it on? Um, no, she, she, the first half was mostly my, my aunt was the person I would rely on to read the first half before I would submit it out. And then, uh, you know, I probably had her read three or four drafts. I had, uh, I mean, I wrote this thing over the course of like eight years. I definitely had a couple friends read drafts and... I don't know. I, so there's a whole culture in LA of asking your friends to read things for you. And like, hey, will you read my pilot? Reading a pilot is like, it, it's, it can be a pain, but it's like a few hours. Asking someone, will you read my 200 page <laughs> sample <laughs> of a middle grade book? They would be like, I don't have time. I don't know how to respond to this. Like, what do you? So yeah, you're kind of, you're swimming on your own for a long time. And then uh, I just, it's, it's kind of the, the, it's so great to have a teammate, just to have somebody who's like invested in the same thing. So eight, eight years, what was it that got you um, wanting to sit down and, and, and uh, write Leo in the, the first place? Oh, I went to an art exhibition in 2000, like mid 2012. Uh, 2012 was a big year for me now that I'm talking about it. Um, so I went to this art exhibition and it was about Da Vinci and they were just like listing cool things about Da Vinci. And they talked about how he, 500 years ago, he built a working robot lion out of wood. And it would take three steps forward and roar. And he built it for the King of France. When he roared, it displayed a bouquet of lilies, the fleur de lis for the uh, royal symbol of France. And the fact that someone with that brain existed 500 years ago just blew my mind. So I imagined, like, if you took that same brain and personality and had it born now, what would it look like? And uh, that was when I started to construct a narrative. And uh, so every character in the book is uh, also based on a Renaissance, uh, a real person from the Renaissance or a real event from the Renaissance. And all the art and illustrations are based on uh, Renaissance art. And that's, I mean, that was your main topic of study while you were at Brown, right, is Renaissance? Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess so. Uh, Brown is like, Brown is essentially a drum circle that grants uh, degrees. It is, <laughs> it is the most kind of, like, I loved being surrounded by this wealth of talent in my peers. Like, everybody was smart, everybody was ambitious, but it's also the, the most, like, 
yeah, man, you're learning stuff and here's your degree. And so, yeah, they're like, I remember having a discussion with a professor and he's like, what are you interested in? And I was like, I really like the Renaissance and I really like uh, the post fifties time period in the U S and he was like, great, there's your major. See, like, <laughs> and he, he's like, I'm making it sound like he just rubber stamped it. Instead, they were like really rigorous about, uh, by the time you're a senior, they were just kind of like, Hey, we're not like, I know we've let you mess around a lot, but we're not, we're, it's like, uh, it's almost like getting a, a martial arts belt where they're like, we don't just give these to anybody, you know, like that's kind of how they felt about a degree, but only my, my like senior year before that, they were just like, whatever you want to do is fine. Maybe they they were just worried <laughs> about, I was going to walk out with a degree and yeah, yikes. Anyway, they'd see you at the Subway Sandwich Shop. No, not to disparage Subway Sandwich Shop workers. You're doing God's work. Yes. But <laughs> they came out, oh, here, here, here's the brown man. Yeah. <laughs> man, I definitely, if you work in the arts, I have definitely had a few years where I'm sure Subway Sandwich artists just killed me on a W 2 form. You know, <laughs> there's definitely been. Not Subway fired me. Uh, when I was in high school, it was, uh, they left me in charge for the night, and I forgot. Uh, I turned off all the lights, and I also turned off the freezer. So they came back the next day. All the lunch meat and everything had gone bad. That that was it for me in Subway. Oh, have you told that story on the podcast before? Nope, that's the first time. So, <laughs> uh, so just so we, uh, if anyone is keeping score at home, uh, Rob, how much less time were you allowed to work at Subway versus Jared Fogel? What, what are we looking at? <laughs> now, in all fairness, to the best of my knowledge, Jared Fogel never spoiled an entire oh, shop worth yeah, of meat. No, that would be unforgivable <laughs> in terms of Subway's purview. Well, that sparks another story I've never told on the podcast. Oh. That was one of the most famous people up to a certain point in my life that I'd ever met. I waited on him uh, when I was in college. I worked on the side at a, at a, a, a a theater slash dinner, a dinner theater. Um, yeah, they have a title for that. It's, it's a yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. And he was eating up toward the front. So I uh, was waiting on him and everyone was like, what's Jared doing? What's... And it, the whole place was watching him eat. And then he goes back to the buffet and he's got his um, girlfriend or fiance then, wink, wink, uh, with him. Uh, and they go and they they get some dessert to share. Everybody's tracing Jared's steps as he comes back. Like, how much of that dessert are you going to eat? Share Jared, should you go get a, a cold cut sandwich and be healthy? Don't fall off the sweets wagon, Jared Bear. And this obviously was a head when he was still a celebrity, and it was it was cool to have waited tables uh, to waited Jared's table. Yeah. Well, can I? You you are skipping over what I think is a very important detail in that story. You said you were waiting on his table, but it was a buffet place. Yeah. Yeah, what skip, kind skip of I didn't think he would just like reach into his coat and pull out a, a little hokey. <laughs> Were you a waiter on the Titanic? How is there a buffet and there's also a full wait staff? This sounds very luxurious. Uh, six or seven of us, so not much. So mostly it was a sweet job as far as waiting tables because they're yeah. going to get the their own food. I'm pouring water and their alcoholic beverages. Then I bring them desserts at the intermission so they can eat through the second half of the show. Uh, and then they tip, not just based on what they paid for the buffet, but also the price of the, the ticket for the show. So it was, it was sweet. That's incredible. It was nice. I don't know why I finished my degree and I went on to get other jobs, but that was, <laughs> I should have yeah. just stuck right there. <laughs> Wait, can anyone do the math on that? I feel like you would definitely have 
some some a-hole is going to get up and be like, I'm not tipping on the price of the ticket, too. You had to encounter that. No, a lot of times the gratuity, there was a gratuity already built in. Oh, all right. Uh, and on top of that, people would, would tip over and above. And when we did the Christmas show each year, oh, you're ready. So that was, it was no, I'm sorry, not Christmas, that New Year's show. They would, they would do the Christmas show all, all through, you know, Christmas season. It was great. And then they would do the last one uh, right up till midnight. And everybody would get trashed and uh, walk out and we'd, we'd clean it up uh, and, and just make all the money. It was swell. I opened for, 10 years ago, I opened for Anthony Jeselnik on uh, New Year's Eve. And uh, I've never seen someone who was less interested in performing for drunks after midnight. <laughs> he literally was just like, he was like, I will, he, honestly, and for that guy's like on stage person, persona, he is the nicest dude in the world. There is no one kinder in comedy than Anthony Jeselnik. But he uh, got together with me and one of the other uh, feature comics. And he was like, I'm not performing after midnight and you guys are certainly not going out there and dealing with these animals <laughs> after midnight. So it got to be 11.59, he counted down and was like, thank you. We'll see, he'd probably done like 30 minutes of uh, total standup and I'm sure the club wanted him to come back and do another whatever. He's like, no thanks. People at New Year's, New Year's shows people it they get like russian wedding drunk i've just never seen anything like new year's comedy shows i'm sure it was the exact same uh, at your jared fogel theater whatever <laughs> jared fogel dinner theater name change i think that one's off the table oh, man. how quickly would a guy be up there with a wrench to take that name off <laughs> the next day yeah. I kind of like the idea of the uh, official uh, Subway dinner theater, though. Yeah. Even yeah. better, the buffet. Just uh, let me bring you a wrap sandwich. You're done. <laughs> All of the sun chips. <laughs> weird cookies. I remember we had to do, we had to write jokes about Subway. They found that Subway's bread had like the same content as yoga mats or something like that. That was one of the premises we had to write jokes about. This is uh, in your TV days? Yeah, we were writing late night jokes. Yeah. So they come in and they're like, all right, well, here's our, our main headlines that we got to cover. And then I write up till filming is somebody keeping half an eye on uh, CNN or whatever and making sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Gonna... There are times when you would have stuff drop at the very last second and you would have to write like 10 jokes as quickly as possible. That's a weird skill to have. Like I've since had to do it a couple of times. I was a producer on the MTV Movie Awards of a few years ago. I worked on uh, a, a TNT roast of the Barkley, Shaq, and Kenny Smith. And when there's no, they need a joke very quickly, it's almost like a magic trick where they can just like shove you in a room and you write uh, as, as quickly as you can and just produce like 10 jokes. They're not gonna be particularly great, but that's when you then have a room that can just kind of punch them up and deal with it. It turns into like, it turns into a weird math where you just, you think of like, you know, like I was talking about with that Suez Canal joke where you come very quickly to that conclusion and then you work from there. I mean, when, you know, 10 minutes to air or whatever, and then just got, you know, somebody tweeted something and this has, this is now the, the news story. I assume that the easiest joke is at least a little bit fair game 10 minutes before. Nope. You still got to check it and get something else. 
Yeah, I mean, you it'll always end up on there. Somebody will be like, hey, this is the... Uh, I always say it's the uncle joke because I'm a dad. So I don't want to say it's the dad joke. <laughs> I don't want to... I don't want to... <laughs> Why, why are we banging on dads? Um, but yeah, it'll it'll be on there. I remember in, it was honestly I owe these two guys probably like seventy percent of my paycheck, and it'll it's very clear what like a different goofier time this was. I wrote so many jokes about Rob Ford and Anthony Weiner. <laughs> sure, and Chris Christie. You don't. You obviously don't want people cursing on the podcast, right? Eh, mostly not. All right. So I, I will abbreviate what he said very, very quickly. But he, Chris Christie, we would make fun of Chris Christie all the time, which is constantly banging on Chris Christie. And uh, I was, we were all writing. We had like some assignment due, and we were in the writers' room, and everybody faced away from the door. And all of a sudden, I could just feel. You, could, you know, sometimes you just feel somebody looking at you, and I turned around. And it was Chris Christie. And, and, and we knew he was going to be a guest on the show that day. Like, he'd agreed to come in. But I, it, it was funny. No guest ever comes into the writer's room. And he's standing there. And I, like, got one of my other coworkers. And eventually, everybody turns around and looks at him after, like, five, ten seconds. And he slowly pans the room and then goes, you mother effers. And then left. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah, every one of us at that point deserved it. Like the, yeah. I don't, don't think so. you, you could have been a worse human being than Chris Christie. So. Yeah. Fair. Yeah. <laughs> For uh, clearing out the beach, what was that on? Uh, was it Fourth of July alone? Chris Christie is yeah. terrible. <laughs> and yeah. Ford was that? Wasn't that Canada's mayor that was smoking crack? Or am I yeah. disparaging? Not, not oh, we were already writing a ton of jokes about him, and then he got caught smoking crack. <laughs> I remember when they, like, I like Jimmy was dumbfounded when they were like, hey, he got caught smoking crack. Jimmy, like, literally, like, sat back. Like, I can't. What? What do I do with this guy? I don't. Smoking crack? Yeah, I remember that was the first reaction, where he, he looked back at the writer's assistant and just goes, smoking crack? <laughs> just like, like. How in 2013 are you having the most 1987 scandal possible? Like smoking crack. Yeah. That's that's gotta be impossible to make jokes when the news gets that weird. Like, oh, yep. okay. my joke was gonna be you smoke crack, but you literally you did that, so there's no there's no runway left. <laughs> everything I can do. I don't want to I don't want to blow up the news, but I mean the uh, Matt Gates being in the. Yeah, we don't. We probably probably want to cut that from the podcast. Uh, we we can talk about Matt Gates, but this will come out uh, like the first or second week of May because uh, we record oh. ahead of time. And by then, hopefully, Matt Gates will be a, a fine, upstanding citizen again, and all of this <laughs> will have gone away. That joke is He was never a fine, upstanding citizen. Yeah. Did you? Are obviously both of our personal hero, moral and political, Matt Gates. Uh, that one without saying sure yeah. i uh i actually donated to his campaign in the name of the jared fogel dinner theater <laughs> you know what he did today did you hear what he got i saw there was he was paying some 17 year i don't know what the exact scandal is so you tell us to the audience yeah that's he's yeah you're you're done i, I hope so but i don't think we're right. on that side of the aisle anymore 
I don't, I don't think there are scandals on the Republican side. Isn't it crazy that uh, I I have felt like this forever, and it is something I've always like I whatever someone is yelling about the loudest is always their biggest insecurity. You know, like oh, Matt Gates being like ah human trafficking, and they're all human trafficking. And it's like of course you're going to get picked up for that. Of course that's what you're doing. Like whatever people are really mad about, that's what they are doing or what they would do. <laughs> You know, uh, usually if, if somebody is really if, if it's like a like a television minister that's really outspoken about homosexuality, it's just countdown to the sex tape. It's it's that train is never late. It's always like, hey, he was in a church parking lot. And you're like, of course he was. Why was he? Who cares? I get. Yeah, maybe that's the reveal is just like whatever you whatever you're mad about. That's what you really care about. And so. Yeah, that's probably why you're up to underhanded nonsense. Yeah, see, the uh, problem with um, with a show like this where we record ahead of time is, like, especially during the, the Trump years, was like, okay, well, we could talk about today's scandal. Yeah. But by the time this airs, we will be 25, 30 scandals behind. And what? none of it will matter. <laughs> no, just completely irrelevant. I was on a rowing team in college. And one of, uh, it is... My favorite, I wish everyone in America had rowed at some point in high school or college because they would understand that Donald Trump Jr. rowed for one year at the University of Pennsylvania and he went 702 for 2,000 meters, which is the most embarrassing statistic. <laughs> I get like the slowest guy on our team went 640 and I like couldn't look him in the eye where it's just like, what's going on, man? Like, cause you're, you're, if you're there, uh, rowing is not a sport that requires a lot of athleticism. It is just like pulling on a chain. You're pulling on a rowing machine. And ultimately it just becomes like how much pain you're kind of willing to deal with is like, it's a combination of like you groove in the, the uh, aerobic ability, and then you kind of groove in the the I don't know, like the the muscle repetition. And if you're going seven oh two, it means you're just soft. You're just so cookie soft. And so for that guy to have his fake tough guy routine where he's like killing elephants and giraffes in Africa, like he's Ernest Hemingway. God, that made me so furious <laughs> that I because I. Uh, I went, uh, he went to Penn and uh, I was on a rowing team briefly in high school and uh, I got recruited because I was so big and I, I was at Penn the day that they were having a 2000 meter test and I was like I was like is that Donald Trump's kid and they're like yeah but he goes 702 and then they all like like goofed on him because he was just such a uh, uh, such a wuss and I don't know I mean uh, I there was no one no one over the past four years annoyed me more than that guy acting like it's like he was tough <laughs> like you're not I know you I I've seen tangible proof that you're not when you're uh, in a writer's room and you get to make jokes about whatever the, the political scandal is does that, do you feel like more than like, a, I've got a Twitter account and I can, I can tell everybody how angry I am. Do you feel like that lets off some steam? Like you maybe will, will influence viewers one way or the other, or is it, nope, just still 
makes you angry and there isn't much to be done? Oh, there's, uh, I mean, there's something like not funny about anger that you like, you really kind of ride the line. I think that's, that's what, like I sat next to Jess Dweck, who, if you are on Twitter, Jess Dweck should be mandatory. She should get like you, your Twitter account should start with following Jess Dweck. Like we used to do with Tom and MySpace. Like you just be mandatory that you're constantly reading her tweets. Jess Dweck dropped out of Yale Law School and Caltech's Jet Propulsion Program. She dropped out of like each of those in succession to write. And she was writing to write jokes. And she, she ended up writing at Fallon. And she would just like, she would come up with, with jokes where it's just like, I, my brain just doesn't work that at nearly as well as yours. Like, I, I don't know how you managed to come up with that that was so well articulated, had such a fun twist and also like just crushed the actual, uh, the premise or whatever. Like uh, we, uh, and this is her dumbest joke, but we had, there was a, we used to have video clips and there was a, a clip of Beyonce came out at a concert and then there were like three giant, uh, like windmill fans behind her and her hair got caught in one of the windmills, like slowly twisting windmills. So like, obviously she was never in danger and someone came up and just cut her out of it. But she was there for a second, like trying to sing and you could see her hair caught in this thing. And just wax, everybody's writing jokes, whatever. Just, just wax joke was, uh, afterwards the machine was like, I'm sorry, Beyonce. It's just, I'm such a huge fan. <laughs> <laughs> right. And you're just like, I, oh, that's, I, I so mad that I hadn't thought of that. And it was just so perfectly worded. And yeah. Just killed it. She was on. Yeah. That's, and so there you are. You're, you're killing it as a TV writer. You're, you're doing stand up comedy, which makes sense with your background from Brown and uh, with a, with a Renaissance study. <laughs> so what was the plan when you were studying the Renaissance just to, to study and, 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 and row and, and, and be great at things? Oh, or, no. I thought I was going to be right and do comedy. <laughs> I thought I was going to be a, I thought I was going to be a teacher um, for a while. And then I don't know. I, when I was in third grade, I remember watching uh, A&E's Evening at the Improv hosted by Greg Luganis and they were doing stand up comedy. And I was like, oh, that's what I want to do. And so I like that's what I was always kind of angling to pursue uh, in college and after college. I just wanted to be involved in comedy. And I don't like you kind of. I remember I remember doing stand up and opening for somebody and realizing like, oh, I'm never going to be Kevin Hart. You know what I'm saying? Like, I remember opening for it was like opening for Jezelnik and uh, I remember like when I would go to open mics and see Amy Schumer doing stand up and I was like, oh, I think I'm OK at this. You're incredible at this. And that's um, I, I, what is it called? Is it called the Pareto distribution about how like there's success and then there's like you know, you're one in a million of a million of a million. And you kind of realize that after doing uh, stand up for years, where it's like, I like, I, don't, I think I'm competent. And then you would see people where it's like, oh, you're like, you have some type of weird muse operating in you where you are so much better 
at this than like I remember seeing Eric Andre. Well, I was on a show with Eric Andre in Hoboken in like 2009 or something. Like we were, we were both like three or four years into comedy, and I did I did fine. Like I went up, I got a you know like got a bunch of laughs, did did good or did well, and then Eric got up and just like he he took people who were just kind of there and hanging out, like laughing, like this is fun. And then like you physically hurt them. He was making them laugh so hard. He started, he was do uh, anyway, but that's just, uh, I remember seeing that and realizing like, Oh, I'm not that. And that made me uh, start to transition and transition into a lot more of uh, comedy writing and writing narratives and writing uh, frankly, like this book, just kind of combining everything into uh, this story, which there's, there are a lot of jokes in this uh, middle grade fiction book. I was just trying to keep it light, you know, like keep it. I mean, are you 41? Is that how old you say you are? Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. So exact same age. I just remembered like the books that they would give us to read when I was in sixth, seventh, eighth grade. They were they were mostly fine books, but there weren't a lot of jokes in them. <laughs> it wasn't like I don't ever remember like ooh. I, they were. I remember reading uh, Animal Farm on the way. My dad took my brother and my cousin and I to the Baseball Hall of Fame. And I remember the drive from Philadelphia to Cooperstown, reading Animal Farm and being like, oh, this is this is a good read. I remember reading like Stephen King books. I just don't remember reading anything where I was like, this is like, this is funny. There are, there are jokes in here that I get. And so that's what I was trying to do with this book is write um, an adventure book that kind of, it's a, it's a hero story that combines um, elements of art history and, and things that I think would be cool for you to know, but also uh, has jokes. Uh, it was originally pitched as Diary of a Wimpy Kid crossed with a Dan Brown novel. Fair enough. Yeah. I think it's, uh, it's almost dead on what the finished product is. Oh, so, cool. You, you everything that we've talked about up to this point, esteemed audience, has been leading us to uh, Leo, inventor extraordinaire. <laughs> Sorry, I just I get excited to talk to anyone else who is roughly my own age. <laughs> I regret nothing. This is a fantastic episode. I could talk to I could talk about summer of '89, Batman. Like, what T-shirt did you have? All, all of that for hours. I was looking at a. Yeah. What was yours? A red tank top. Red tank top, which is mm -hmm. the bat symbol. Yep. Robin I had a winter hat that my parents bought me in August. It was like really hard, like corduroy, but I refused to take it off. So I just walked around with a sweaty head. Uh, yeah. So I got my first pimples probably earlier than I would have because of that stupid hat. <laughs> you got to get their winter hats in August. It's like getting the Halloween candy or in mid-November. You know, you got to get it. Prices are lowest. I just, I don't know, I'm, I, I've i spent the past few weeks looking at possibly getting, um, um, do you know what a Mamercade is? What is it? So it's like an old arcade machine that just comes loaded with like 12,000 games. Like every game 
that you and I probably like could not wait to go to a pizza hut on a Friday night to play. You know, like you just wrote a book it report. Your parents are like, fine, we'll go get your personal pan pizza, whatever it is. And you go walk into that pizza hut. You see like the Tiffany lamps and stuff. And then there's that smell. Everything is made up with those cast iron uh, pizza dishes. And you can hear like the video games bopping. They're always around the corner from the entrance. And there's now machines that they are essentially selling just to dudes like you and I <laughs> that are 100% targeted to us. That is like, hey, we're going to put every one of those games on an on an old feel machine, but you're playing it off of like whatever the CPU is in the uh, in like the arcade setup, and it's then set up on a flat screen. It looks like an old arcade machine, but it has twelve thousand games, and all the games that you and I probably pumped our allowance worth of quarters into. So like Ninja Turtles arcade and Simpsons. I mean, honestly, I can start reading off of my phone earlier. I was making a list of, like, games that I want to make sure they have. But it would be, like, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, The Simpsons game, Street Fighter, the whole series. Whatever. All right. I'm going to... Yeah, we're good. <laughs> this is going to be another deep dive. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it is funny that they, 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 they hook you early, uh, and then you just want that same thing forever through life. Oh, my God, another Kirby game. Yes. That guy. Uh, dude, I, I was literally playing Kirby with my 19-month-old son, like, uh, a week ago. And he was just trying to teach him how to work it and how fun Kirby is. And, like, my, uh, my writing partner, I remember he told me that he ended Golden Axe when he was in high school. And so that has been my my dream for like the if i ever sell something or like a series gets made i am going to buy him one of these main mercades that looks like golden axe and has golden axe on it that is the yeah that was always the dream um Leo, do you want to get back to leo oh right yeah your book yeah. <laughs> sorry uh, uh, yeah give uh give esteemed audience kind of an overview what are they what, what should they know about this book going in so um, the best summary I have of Leo is uh, Diary of a Wimpy Kid crossed with a Dan Brown novel. Uh, it is fun, short, punchy chapters about a 13-year-old boy genius who finds out he is heir to the world's coolest toy company. But um, he has to use his talents to try and rescue the company and also find out why he was left behind at this uh, mysterious school called the Academy of Florence. Uh, and he's eventually gonna solve what happened to his family and also uh, use his genius level uh, ability as an artist, scientist, engineer, architect. He's gonna use that talent to help uh, rebuild the company. Uh, the hook is that it's all based on the life of Leonardo da Vinci who really was abandoned until he was 13 years old. And uh, so every character is based on someone from the Renaissance and uh, every illustration that's in the book is also based on uh, something from the Renaissance or inspired by art from the Renaissance. Gotcha. And so um, all kinds of, of questions. One question I had was, was why age 13? But I, I believe we've, <laughs> we've covered that. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah. <laughs> what um who's who's the ideal reader uh for this story oh man um i think like 
9 to 14, 15, and then hopefully um, their parents. I mean, the way my editor described it is uh, you're, you're slipping some spinach into the brownies where it's just kids reading it and being like, oh, here's, uh, I enjoyed this book. There were some jokes. There's an adventure. And then they're going to be like, also, I can tell you how you're supposed to interpret a painting at an art museum because that's one of the ways that he uh, solves a puzzle in the book uh, that Da Vinci does. And um, yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the ideal reader is uh, kids and then their parents who are excited for their kids to know a little bit more about the Renaissance and art history. And then um, with, a, with a book like this, for eight years you're, you're working on it while you're doing all kinds of incredible other stuff. Oh. Um, and uh, working, working, working on TV and, and, and doing some comedy and all kinds of great stuff. What is it that brings you back to this over those eight years? Why, after year one, do you not set it aside? I'm sure you've done that with other projects most writers have. Uh, what was it that brought you back to this one and kept you coming back? Um, I grew up in this very, this, this working class community where I had seen how devastating it can be when when jobs leave when things kind of exit a community and i i kind of attributed to that to a, a lack of ethics that i saw the ways that i felt like corporations were conducting themselves and to me what has been the huge progress since the renaissance is the enforcement of ethics the the like the enlightenment is arriving at the idea that we should all agree on a truth so from there i started writing about a, an ethical hero and the idea being that he would renew his own community with like a cool company and give people jobs that that made them feel dignified that made them enjoy going to work and so i from that like I was like, okay, so what happens if that guy is disappeared? And that became uh, the story about how uh, Leo is going to try and find out what happened to his father. That makes sense. Yeah. And that, that, that little nugget there, that was just, you wanted that to be front and center for as many readers as you could find? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of core to it. Like, the book is dedicated to my son, Finn, and uh, I, it, so the dedication is uh, heroes are ethical, be a hero. And I just felt so strongly about the way that those corporations just kind of abandoned my town. and was just imagining, like, what would happen if someone came to renew it and came to renew this community and did it in, like, I, guess I was like imagining how cool it would be. When I was a kid, I went to the Hasbro factory, which is in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. Like my dad found it along I-95 after we went to visit family in Boston. He was like, we're going to stop here. And we stopped at the G.I. Joe factory. So seven-year-old me just lost my mind. And I couldn't believe how cool it was <laughs> that all these people worked at a G.I. Joe factory. And so I was just imagining like what would happen if 
you had a company that was way cooler than that. Like with, essentially was making like Apple, but for children, that's the company that uh, Leo is going to inherit. And I'm just I'm like, just, I don't know, just you, you get excited about what you get excited about. I guess it's the inverse of what we were talking about earlier about like the, what creeps are mad about is always what they care about the most. Like the inverse is you can only be really be excited about what you're excited about. And for me, I was always like, boy, if we really did this ethically, like we could, we could all succeed. Like this, this community could be that Friday night at a pizza hut again, where everybody's parents are, are uh, financially secure and they do work that they enjoy and like look at what we have going on here versus like hey we offshored all of your jobs and paid 37 people what we used to pay one of you and good luck so i'm i don't i, <laughs> I feel like i'm like i'm making the core of the book sound sad and it's not it's about <laughs> not at all it's building your that community versus like Ooh. Boy, this sounds like a Robert Altman movie. It's not. It's, it's yeah. Or Tim Burton. <laughs> <laughs> nah. Yeah, those are the same. <laughs> I they made so many movies, they probably overlap somewhere in there. Um, but I, I am fascinated by this narrative, and I'm a sucker for it as well, because like I love this idea that Bruce Wayne is going to use all of his money and fortune to, to go punch people in the face, or Tony Stark's going uh, yeah. to save us. And then we look to somebody like uh, you know Elon Musk, um, who might be one of the better of, of the billionaires, or God, Sheldon Adelson, who is never put on a rubber suit and punched anyone in the face, I swear to you. <laughs> At no point has he stood up for justice. Yeah, I wonder about these narratives sometimes because we do yearn for these this one percent these these rich people to do the right thing. I wonder when I don't know, maybe, when are we going to get smarter? I guess when when do those narratives go away? Because <laughs> they're not doing it. They're they're going to be Donald Trump uh, Jr. out there, not rowing, not not doing working as hard as they could. You know, I mean, so I I went to college with. I really was exposed to really wealthy kids when I first got to college and I couldn't believe it. I remember uh, the convocation where the president of Brown gets up and he's speaking and he's, he's congratulating everyone about like, we are the most valedictorians and blah, 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 we've ever had. And then he's like, and for the first time, over 33% of you are attending on some form of financial aid. And I remember looking around the room because I, I was one of the guys on financial aid. The guy who's my writing partner now was one of the guys who was there on financial aid and being like, I can't believe that two thirds of you have so much money that your family just writes a $40,000 check every year. Just, just bangs that out. I would have thought they were like, 10 families in America <laughs> that, could, that could write that total. And it was the first time I ever really got exposed to those kids. And then you start interacting with them and like as many of there were who were like Donald Trump juniors, there were still just as many who were perfectly cool people and really wanted to, wanted to make something better. And I, I don't know. I've just, Maybe I'm trying to hope that a, more people hold on to that as they get older is uh, fewer and fewer people just 
leaning into uh, kind of a me first mentality. Uh, if they would agree, I would agree. Yeah. <laughs> hope, hope. Yeah. Well, something that struck me uh, right away in the in the book is you mentioned a PlayStation Seven, which of course made me crazy jealous. Like I want a PlayStation Seven. That sounds great. Wouldn't. I was just curious, was that you planning ahead? Like, this is a book now that's got some longevity. We've got at least a decade before that's actually the number, right? Or So Leo is 13 years old. I was imagining if Leo was born today. And so uh, that is that is the closest I come to dating anything in the uh, in the book. I, I mean, one of one of the uh, the quotes when I was uh selling the book was a paraphrase of the Carl Sagan quote that is one of the characters says it in the book um, in that uh, just talking about magic. There's no magic here because magic is just science that we don't understand yet. And so I didn't want there to be any, any magic, any superpowers. This is a guy who is given a brain that he can he can solve things and then like what he learns he applies and he's not always uh, he's not always right he usually forgets a key detail things go askew but he's constantly observing and he's constantly trying to make things better which if you ever look at leonardo da vinci's notebooks it is just filled with him doing that it is filled with so many things that he tried that failed but he took one core element of that effort and then built on it and carried that idea into something else, which is a little bit like the, the writing packets at late night where you're writing 50 things and 48 of them are garbage, but two of them are good enough to end up on a network TV show. And I think like, you know, I mean, that's what uh, my Leo is doing over the course of that book is taking the things that he learns and applying them. I mean, it's uh it's funny that he it, like Da Vinci is regarded as maybe like the 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 best brain that ever existed. Like he, the the most competencies at the most incredible things and the broadest number of them. And he's still in his notebooks. He is there's so many notes of him cursing at himself because he's trying to conjugate verbs in Latin and he can't do it and he hates it. <laughs> it's just like I'm just like why am I doing this? Like, I don't want to, I don't want to talk to these people who only speak Latin anyway. Well, like, what am I doing here? And, uh, yeah, I mean, that is something I incorporated into the book was, uh, my Leo hates Latin and like, can't understand Latin when he encounters it for the first time. And so this is all of your love of the Renaissance back from your days in Brown that you've, you've carried through. What is it about the Renaissance? I mean, obviously we talked about Da Vinci and, and how that inspires you. Is it, is it Da Vinci in, in specific or is it, is it the entire time frame? That... Well, I think it's the entire time frame. I think it's the shift towards uh, the shift to humanism and this, this shift of like, you know, uh, let's make things better in our immediate vicinity as much as possible. And by doing that, we're going to, we're going to chase down truth and empirical truth by this thing called the scientific method. And we're going to, uh, hopefully let go of, uh, some of the superstition. And I mean, it's hard to argue that in the, 
succeeding 500 years that things aren't better for a vast majority of people versus uh, how most people live like 600, 700 years ago. I mean, we've got air conditioning. We've got not PlayStation 7s, but, but PlayStation 4s and 5s. <laughs> Have you found a PS5 yet? Oh, yeah. Oh, man. What? How? Uh, well, I was uh, hovering. I'm, I'm a video game uh, junkie. Uh, so I was hovering on the site the after the big presentation where they revealed all the trailers. Just just in case. Uh, and I didn't trust them to wait till the next day. And I, I was right. So I was... Uh, happened to get in right in the first batch and did my pre-order, uh, and even then I was I was sure somebody was going to jack it off the truck before it got here. But nope, there it was on uh, open. It was one of the proudest. I am not going to be a member of the one percent at this point in my life. I've accepted that's probably not going to happen for me. But by God, that day I was. Ooh, it was nice. <laughs> you played the top hat and the monocle just the entire. Time. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Told these graphics are in 4K, but I can't see because I got the stupid monocle in. But I will take it out. <laughs> this is my moment. <laughs> what game? What What is your favorite game that you played on there so far? So far, Miles Morales uh, was was the best. Although, really, the nice thing about the PS5 is it makes all of the old games better. And I uh, skipped the Pro in between, so I missed the the fanciness. So all the uh, uh, all the all the old games are look even better. So yeah. Do you ever play Assassin's Creed 2? Of course. Uh, 2 is the one with the Da Vinci. That, that's the more, maybe maybe like 70% of my Da Vinci knowledge comes from Assassin's Creed 2. From when he's, he's trying to make a tank for Ezio. Um, yeah, but like, I, I, I loved that video game. That Finishing that game felt like finishing a great book. Like, I, I knew I was going to come back to it. I bought it. I bought the update twice when they did the Ezio collection on PS4. Just man, I really love that game. I love that story and the way they kind of interwove things in the Renaissance and how I felt like you could feel it. You could feel the movement towards truth and empiricism and away from superstition, even in the the narrative in that video game. Yes. I remember when my uh, wife and I went to Vegas, we walked through the, the Venetian and, then, you know, they've got a canal there and they've, they've got some of the uh, walls set up the same. And I'm looking at it, she's like, are you struck by the beauty? You're just looking at it. Like, yeah, I'm in no way plotting how easy I would climb that so easily. <laughs> I'm definitely not looking for a haystack that I can dive into. <laughs> of course. <laughs> There's one thing I've learned. Uh, if video games are to be believed, doesn't matter how high you are, just aim for the haystack. You'll be fine. <laughs> I want when they get bored with the series. I want somebody just one time to have left a pitchfork in there. He doesn't have to die. Just get badly wounded. <laughs> oh, they really they should do that. That should be one of the things. Just funk. Yeah. <laughs> I man, that that was my favorite one of that series, and it's not close. I think Odyssey might be my favorite, but that's probably because I uh, spent a lot of time studying. Uh, Greek literature uh, uh, in college and was like, all right, well, this is definitely going to come in handy. And by God, finally, there was a video game for which I could turn to my wife and be like, you know what that's based on? Yeah, and it has come in handy. Oh, what a what a useful thing to have learned. <laughs> she watches you play. 
Um, she walks by while I play. <laughs> she, she, we've been we've been together uh, long enough that I, I always feel bad for the the. Well, I, I felt bad back in uh, college for the the girlfriends that were there. I would sit and watch the boyfriend all night, and that was the that was the evening's plan. Yeah, I don't think we ever had that phase. No. Uh, but definitely at the phase where that's every all the day's work is done. Uh, and you know, I've got my reading knocked out, and then for about an hour, hour and a half, which feels like a waste of a PlayStation Five. If you're listening and you desperately wanted one, and I got it for my hour and a half, and I, I agree, it's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have to hide it. Like I might as well be doing heroin if I sit down and really get into it. A good two-hour PlayStation run, like it's oh, just yeah. my my wife will not be thrilled. <laughs> That's a certain point. I'm not thrilled. Like, man, yeah. I not push the buttons, but I had ambition. I had goals today. What happened? It is. Like, they really, and God, that game would get me more than any other. Like, that game would get me where it'd be like, I just spent 12 hours running around Renaissance Florence. What am I doing? And I, I yeah. I mean, in hindsight, like, yeah, I was probably incorporating things into this book, but. At the time, I remember being like, oh, well, this is a waste of a day. But I cut TV out of my life to compensate. Yeah. Like, I'll, I'll basically, if I've seen a show, I mostly listen to it while I was playing the, the video game, or I listen to books uh, on on games where the story is not particularly gripping, uh, uh-huh. which is, I, I know, I'm sorry, video game writers, oh, we worked really hard on uh, Borderlands 3. I don't care. Just turn yeah. the volume down on the story part. That's the guy we got to shoot. All right, we'll go shoot him. And then you put a book on tape on or, or a podcast and you can learn things while you're playing. And it's, I don't know. It's not, I, I can't justify it as great, but I could justify it as, um, I mean, if I had binged an entire television series, I don't feel that my time would necessarily have been better spent. Yeah, I think, yeah, you're, you're in all likelihood. Uh, you're right. There, it's it's weird how there are some games though where I really have to you kind of have to like engage with them like literature, like some games you get into and you're like oh now I like Horizon Zero Dawn, mm-hmm. I I because you would hear like a machine coming like you would hear something trying to hunt you from far away so I couldn't listen to. Yeah, but, I mean you can turn it half on and then you just put your phone next to you with the the book on tape going. And like you still hear the the dinosaur roaring, and I'm like if they're gonna talk part of the story, you can pause it. But most video game noises are just pew pew and rah rah. And you don't need to hear yeah. all that. That's so funny. My son and I we find we moved to a house with a yard about a week ago, and there there are these two hoses running around. They're, they're, and so I took the nozzles off of both hoses, and have just been like fake running around chasing each other and going pew pew pew. So now that is what he has been yelling at me all the time is pew pew. He just wants to go play Pew Pew. Yeah, that's the other thing that really cuts into video game time is having a child and you, know, you got to spend time with them and raise them. And... They've got all kinds of questions. <laughs> Plus, you got it right at some point. Yeah. <laughs> so, do some work. I did see that um, uh, I'd ask you about uh, a website. You've got your, your Instagram going and you've got uh, the, 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 obviously, HarperCollins is doing. Uh, quite a bit for the book. How are you uh, finding the best ways to promote the book aside from coming on this show? Oh, yeah. Rob, your guess is as good as mine as how to best promote uh, a book. I'm I'm 
going on here. I mean, one of the things I'm doing is I'm going around the independent bookstores in my immediate vicinity and uh, bringing the ISBN and seeing if they will carry the book. Um, and, you know, like that's been cool, especially when they're like, oh, we already had somebody call in and order for it. Or, uh, we, you know, like we, I, I, there's a store in LA, there's this little section on Saltel Avenue that's, uh, it's like kind of Japanese, like there are all these cool Japanese restaurants and there are chain stores that only exist in Japan and then they'll have one location in Los Angeles and it's all on this block. And there was a place called the Giant Robot Store, which is right up your alley. It is just nothing but like, like non-common collectibles. Like you really have to know a specific thing before you like get whatever anime character they have in a mecha and that type of stuff. So I, I've loved this store and like going to it cause you just feel it's so well curated. And I went and uh, they're gonna carry the book and I couldn't have been more happy about it. I would, the cover of the book is um, Leo in the pose of a Vitruvian, the Vitruvian man pose, the very famous Da Vinci circle within the square man with the limbs extended. And, uh, but it's my character wearing the mech suit that he's gonna build over the course of the novel. And um, I don't know, I was just so thrilled to see that in the giant robot store that I've been going to for years. Be like, oh yeah, I made a giant robot. And now it's at this giant robot store that I've been coming to anyway. You made it, it happened. Yeah. <laughs> That's Giant robot store. And do you, uh, without without spoiling the ending, because there there's some things that that wrap up nicely, but there's still plenty of room for Leo to go, aside from the fact that he and everyone in the story are dead. Um, <laughs> I, I assume that there. Do you have plans to to explore? Yeah. God, I hope it. I hope it finds an audience. Uh, you know, obviously, I would uh, love to come back on Middle Grade Ninja again. Uh, have a reason to, and uh, <laughs> you can come back anytime. We'll just talk about Jared some more. Yeah. We'll talk about arcades. Um, so it's one of my other favorite uh, quotes I've heard about art is it's uh, uh, like art paintings. Um, art is how you decorate space, but music is how you decorate time. And um, that is one of the, the puzzles that is kind of left open at the end of the book is um, the music and the idea of like how you could use uh, music to write some some puzzles and use it to solve clues and the mysteries and obviously one of the first clues that Leo has to solve is uh, a music based puzzle and uh, he's he's playing the piano in his room and uh, that is inspired by it's called the uh, violinta organista which is this instrument that da vinci again invented 500 years ago which was a combination of an organ and a viola so it was like it had like a rotating drum but then it had piano keys at the end of it it was like this wild thing to even <laughs> come up with and uh it's you know it's been in his notebooks forever and a guy in a polish concert pianist they constructed one and he played a concert on it um, I think it was a few years ago and you know it sounded beautiful it worked uh, as design and my character Leo solving that first puzzle that is music based um, I would kind of expand that 
if it was going into a sequel, because again, we're not really uh, ruining anything, but one of the things we reveal is that his mother was a musician. So that is, uh, and that again is partially based on fact is that uh, Katerina, who was Leonardo da Vinci's uh, real mom, was uh, known in the town as uh, someone with a, a beautiful voice. It's crazy how many uh, inventions that, that da Vinci had that you can't even fit them all in an Assassin's Creed trilogy. Yeah. <laughs> so every canal lock in the world, speaking of canals are in the news, uh, every canal lock in the world is still based on a design that da Vinci came up with 500 years ago. Like da Vinci looked at how canals worked and was like, well, this won't do and came up with this design. And it like, it, obviously we're not using the same physical canals as existed 500 years ago, but like that design is entirely based on something that Leonardo da Vinci came up with in terms of hydrodynamics. As soon as we figure out how to clone people from the past, uh, don't bother with me, folks in the in the future that are listening. You get to me when you've run out of everybody else, then you you clone me. But by God, get Da Vinci. Like, gotta be first or second. Oh, that's uh, you know, there's a movie about that that's coming out. Oh, really? Yeah, it's called. I think it's called the Tomorrow War. It was originally titled Ghost Draft, but it was a thing like the planet is being invaded, and also humans somehow have time travel. So they can go get people from history to try and help now. But yeah, that is so like Bill and Ted, but with some war. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Bill and Ted plus war is 100% probably how it was pitched in a room. Probably so. I'm yeah. sold. Let's yeah. see, see this film. <laughs> yeah, it worked. I wanted to ask you about uh, HarperCollins Christian. Um how do you how did I mean, did you seek them out specifically for this book or did did you get to the book and, and then when did the uh, the scriptures that are in the book were they added had you added those up front or was oh, that no. like with Harper Collins Christian um no I did I, I was in uh Catholic school for 13 years so I had a, a very strong uh working vocabulary with uh scripture and uh you know the original formation of the church into uh the italian renaissance um so yeah none of that was was harper collins christian or zondervan's decision that was 100 percent mine um incorporating the bible into uh the puzzles and yeah i mean i i really uh i I have so much respect for uh, the the Bible and the philosophical and psychological ideals that are in the Bible and like the 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 ethics that uh, you see modeled in the characters and the storytelling. And so I just wanted to include that and make sure that the kind of the foundation of Western storytelling was accounted for in uh, in the puzzles and like the difficult things that this kid has to do to to go try and find his family. And then it just happened to be a happy uh, thing that HarperCollins Christian was was looking for books. And yeah, I mean, my um, my book agent uh, always loved the idea. 
uh, it was so funny. I mean, in the process of getting feedback, one of the one of the rejections, which you inevitably get rejected, one person's rejection was uh, in 13 years of being a YA editor. This is the most commercial idea that's ever come across my desk. However, I can't get past the fart jokes. <laughs> okay. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, my first came out here, or uh, my book agent came out here. She's great, uh, Adrian's or Helen, and um, she was like, I think the place for this might be at Zondervan, which was uh, HarperCollins Christian, and they were looking to do a like a, a kids adventure book, and uh, yeah, I was it. One of the reviews online, we have uh, a few early reviews, and one of them calls it very wholesome, which I I was worried that I was worried that the joke the book would not be fun to read. I was worried that kids would go into a library and be like four hundred pages, bah! but um, I'm thrilled how much uh, the response has been. People have been able to like zip through it, and then uh, this one review was like four stars out of five, wholesome, fun. I enjoyed reading, however, just a dusting of scripture. So <laughs> I'm only getting like even four stars out of five, which I get it. You know, like you're you're buying uh, uh, from a brand and you have expectations. But um, yeah, I mean, hopefully they are are open minded to understand that it is not in any way. Uh, uh, it's certainly not an anti Christian book. It's just not as uh, overtly Christian as I think. They might have come to expect from uh, the kind of HarperCollins Christian Zondervan brand. Did they have any kind of expectations for you as far as um, what would go in the book, what couldn't go in the book, and how you would conduct yourself while promoting the book? Oh no, absolutely! Like no, I mean, you know, you you meet with them, they talk to people, and not like. I'm pretty sure if I'd have been on a Zoom and I looked like Marilyn Manson or something, they would have been like, all right, I know what is this guy up to? But um, no, 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 absolutely no uh, limits. And uh, one of the, the editors, or I mean, my editor, Jackie Alberta, is like, she, she would get excited when I would you know, talk about the the humanism in the Christian iconography. I mean, like, that's what da Vinci was doing. He was taking the stories that everybody understood because you you really only knew storytelling via the, the, or it was the most standard story was the Bible. That, like, that's what you were culturally inculcated to in, uh, at that time. And he would take those stories and just make them so, like, vivid and touch into the, uh the the kind of like ethics underpinning it like you know i mean you look at the last supper it's like jesus was a great dude he had a lot of friends they loved to party with him like you know i mean the uh i i can't imagine how much fun it would be to hang out with like the the wedding at cana jesus where he was like what we only have two jugs of water bang knock yourselves out who wants to hang out like that 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 jesus is a blast of a jesus there's no way he walks away from that and then doesn't have to do that everywhere he goes for the rest of his that, life. I mean, if you do that party <laughs> trick once, people... There was a guy... I went to college with a guy who could do a backflip off of a picnic table. We would bring it up 
every time he would go to a new wedding, you'd be like, do you know what this guy can do? You can do a fucking, you can do a handspring off of a picnic table. So if you're turning water into wine, absolutely that's coming up. And there's like, no way the Romans had heard that story because if they had, he'd have been off that cross so fast. Got to be see some fella. <laughs> Not getting rid of this. So yeah, I mean, but that's like that's the that's the the Christian ideal that I think Da Vinci and a lot of the the Renaissance painters leaned into. I mean, it kind of started with Dante and the Divine Comedy, but just talking, just making Christianity and the ethics that are the underpinning of Christianity and making them more relatable uh, to humans, like that's humanism. And that is a philosophy I've always embraced. Makes 100% sense to me. So wow. obviously my next question is, Luke Cunningham, have you ever seen a flying saucer and or a ghost? Uh, I swear I've seen a ghost. <laughs> so I... I was, could not be more excited about this question. So I was in, uh, when I was in college, I was in a place called Herman Hall, and there had always been a rumor that Herman Hall was haunted. And uh, I, I am convinced that I turned around and I saw something sitting in a chair in my then, my one of my three roommates at the time, his bedroom. And I was like, and I remember being like, Tommy, and then, I was like, and I like went into his room. I was like, I just saw you sitting here and there was no one there. And I am uh, like, I, mean, I didn't like look at it for a while. I didn't have a conversation. There was no, you know, there was no uh, exchange between us. But I was like, I swear I just saw something sitting here. Someone sitting here. Well, here we are all these years later. It's a, the same conviction I can tell. Uh, has not gone away, and you haven't thought up. Uh, you haven't thought up some way to explain it away. No, no. Do you think so? Do you think flying saucers are real? Absolutely. I. Uh, what is your? What bit of information or entertainment has convinced you the most that flying saucers are real? Because mine is kind of incorporated into the book. Okay, can, I mean, we can give yours away without spoiling the book, right? Yeah. But you want to, you want me to show my cards before you show yours? Am I, am I <laughs> reading that? <laughs> well, I guess I, what I'm politely asking is, do you, did you recognize mine in the context of the book? Um, no, uh, I must have, I must have missed the part about flying saucers. I got that there was something. Well, you explain it. So, uh, element one fifteen. Right is what is used to encase the MacGuffin over the course of right. the star disk because it has a magnetic property that can contain a cold fusion reactor, a nuclear fusion reactor. Oh, went Bob Lazar. I, I know yeah. I missed that completely. There you go. No, so I just read is, right over that. It might as well have been my delayed mouse maker action in 86 or whatever. It was like, okay, well, this is the MacGuffin. It's fine. No, okay, yeah. Yeah, that so that sense. was... That, and and that is the uh, that has convinced me more than anything else are those Bob Lazar uh, podcasts and the Bob Lazar footage and the Bob Lazar documentary. Yeah, it's uh, 
it's it I'm hard pressed not to believe Bob Lazar. But even without him, I I always have to disclaim that I want it to be true. I don't want us to be the only folks in the universe. I want there to be something greater beyond that we're all eventually going to go and join. Yeah. So I have to be a little bit suspicious of myself just because I know that that is my motive of wanting it to be true. But no, I think there's just enough smoke that there's fire. But the number one piece of evidence my grandma saw, one of my grandma wouldn't lie to me. <laughs> my grandma a liar. She wouldn't do it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, it's like, the, at this point, they've been in the New York Times. Like, we've seen that. And so uh, my concept is, and honestly, this would be the best case scenario for this book, is... 20 years from now, some kid with a winning lottery ticket of a brain and she comes up to me or they come up to me and they're like, hey, I read your book 20 years ago and you were so wrong, but it made me wonder how that could work. And like, this is what I came up with for uh, a cold fusion reactor. Like this is what I came up with for uh, something that, uh, you know, like a revolutionary field of metallurgy. So, yeah, I mean, at this point, I feel like we move beyond, are there, can uh, flying saucers exist to like, how do they exist? And like, that's what, uh, I feel like that's what Bob Lazar was doing. It's like, hey, they had me working on uh, reverse engineering how flying saucers exist, which is I, that I find like inarguably plausible. <laughs> yeah, I mean the just the just the motive behind a long con like that. I, I mean there are some people that like just playing long jokes, but I know he's never he says he's never taken money, and I, I believe him because he's been able to make enough money doing other yeah. things with his brilliant mind. And he's it's it's been since like the first. The first video of it is 1987 on Las Vegas local like network TV. They interview him, and he's like, "Yeah, this is this is what they had me doing." And I, yeah, so I don't know. I, it, the dream is that some kid reads this and they're the next Bob Lazar, but with far more uh, credibility and hopefully a. Uh, a heart that is so ethical that they want to see whatever community they grew up in succeed and flourish. Hopefully they can work in like an open publicly traded office and we can all know that, yeah, they're working on it. Of course they are. Right. It's the C++ of renewable energy. It's one thing that drives me a little bit nuts. And I, I saw Steven Spielberg make this argument, which of all people, come on, man. Yeah. Uh, but the argument that uh, in, in this age where everybody is carrying around a phone in their pocket, where are all the pictures? Where are all the videos? And it's like, dude, have you been on YouTube? <laughs> that's that's like a third of the Internet. It's just yeah. pictures and videos. <laughs> They're not going to be happy until it's that that scene from Signs and it's just a birthday party in Brazil and then a giant humanoid walks in between the bushes the big no, right that, that won't do it that'll be that'll be just yeah. CGI. yeah that, that's just a guy in a suit <laughs>
Uh, although I do uh, wonder sometimes, just because we're getting to the point where with you know deep fakes and everybody else, I'm sure you saw the the deep fake video of Tom Cruise that wasn't yeah. Tom Cruise, and and look at me hosting a video podcast and giving uh, hours of footage to whoever eventually wants to, uh, I, I guess, scam my PlayStation Five. I haven't got a great deal of value, so I'm probably not a high profile target at this moment, but yeah. perhaps one day. Uh, I, I do wonder um, how we're going to be able to distinguish um, reality from everything else, which I'm kind of excited about. Because when you and I get to be by retirement age, I'm sure you've seen the uh, uh, Black Mirror episode that everybody's um, obsessed with that I can't think of the name of, where they play Heaven is a Place on Earth at the end. And they're all in a, the, the, the seniors are in a virtual reality display yeah. and they go on living in that. I think that's coming. I'm, I'm, I welcome it. Yeah, I I mean, I remember that Black Mirror episode. That's also, I mean, like, what's the line between that and The Matrix? It's just you get to live a full life first, and then you're just kind of hooked up to this uh, interface that you're just going to march on forever? Maybe. That's pretty sweet. I was thinking. I was thinking about like if you, I would love if you could take all the like knowledge that I have. If you could take like the like here's the things I've gotten competent at, and if I could just download them to my kids, I'd be thrilled. Be like, hey, you don't have to spend, you you don't have to spend however many years like banging up your hands uh, rowing. You can do this, or like, I here's what I learned about how hard it is to. to write a book like the inertia of not writing is so much more fun than the actual writing that but like here's you learned this pomodoro session process or i learned it so you don't have to and like find a way to kind of download those things but then like which and this is like maybe this is essentially the same as having children like their free will is like no i want the time to learn and make those mistakes on my own and what I guess what I'm saying, what I would love to do is find a way to like, they don't have to make those mistakes. Like I've already made them. Here's what I've learned. Here's how you can apply it and go forward. And I would, if, if it was a situation like that, if we we're senior citizens 50 years from now, but the collective wisdom can kind of be downloaded into uh, our children and grandchildren, like, yeah, then I'd be psyched. Then I definitely, I would be excited to stick around and see how that works out. Yeah, that'd be good too. Although I'm, I'm, I'm kind of pumped about the idea of just living on in a. <laughs> I don't even care. Like, just wall us off and let them all go back to stone uh, cave people times. I'm, I'm sorry to see that, but hey, how sweet is this for us? <laughs> and yeah. that is why rich people aren't ethical. <laughs> There's too many of me's up there at that level. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, probably. That does to us up perfectly for what is uh, my 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 uh, last question. Usually, I try to end the interview here, and that is, if you could pass on some knowledge, if there is something that you uh, would go back and tell yourself, or you tell future writers that would have made your journey easier and would make their journey easier, will make easier all the the journey of all the writers who are listening to us. What would you? What would you? What wisdom would you impart? Do the work find a way to make the work as efficient as possible but you have to do the work and so like you're 
no one's first draft is good. No one's like no, nothing ever just pours out of your brain onto the page and doesn't get changed. So you have to find a way to get that first draft done. Whatever method that needs to be, whatever discipline you need to apply to yourself, do it. And uh, if I can recommend the one that worked for me, it's wake up, set your timer, 25 minutes, throw your phone someplace, free write by hand, and then do the same 25 minute method, except you're, you're trying to type out whatever ideas you came up with into something that is hopefully coherent and engaging and fun. I think that's the perfect note to end on. Uh, Luke, thank you so much for, for making the time. This has been uh, just an absolutely uh, delight of a conversation. Yeah, man. Good seeing you. If you are, uh, are you ever in Los Angeles? Um, not at the moment, but uh, once uh, once we're vaccinated and the world returns to some semblance of normal, absolutely. Come on out, man. We'll go to a barcade. Maybe we'll have one in the backyard at that point, and uh, we will. I, there's nothing I enjoy more than people who are in roughly my same age group and crushing old video games together. <laughs> like, I mean, that's why I love barcades. I can't tell you how many times I've gone and been like, here is. It, 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 going to the mall with your parents when you were a kid and it would be like you get 15 minutes in Aladdin's castle and you're like what games am I going to play and like what do we get and now it's like I'm going to be here for the next two and a half hours they have beer on tap I'm ending X-Men tonight let's go I've got six dollars <laughs> and 25 cents in quarters it, it's like half the price of a movie I'm going to end final fight and there's just something about that like camaraderie that like you would have engaged in when you were a kid if you had just had the time and the money <laughs> And now you're like, yeah, I got nothing but time and money. Let's go. And by nothing but my, I'm not, I am not wealthy by any stretch, but I can definitely bang out like $6.25 on uh, ending metal slug in whatever. Spend it from Brown. All right. $6. Good boy. Yeah. What was your, what was your favorite all time like arcade game? Oh, man. That's uh... probably Simpsons. And then the reason why it's personal, it's not the game itself. Uh, it's that I had a best friend that would come and sit there and, and they had it at our, our Walmart and we'd ride our bikes over and we'd put the quarters in them and <laughs> go to town. Dude. And later we, we got it, I think, on NES or Super yeah. Nintendo. And it, uh, it just wasn't the same as I, uh, there at the Walmart. They never were. They always, it was always like some pale comparison of it. But I, I was just trying to hold up. I will, uh, whatever. I, I'll just send it in the email. But it's, this is the list of games I, I want on the four-player pedestal that I made earlier. And my wife was like, what are you doing? And I was like, way too embarrassed to tell her <laughs> what I was doing. My son is wandering around. I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. <laughs> everybody yeah. know dream, the dream list of the arcade games. She's like, what are you up to? And I'm just writing Double Dragon series, but not trying to make eye contact with her at the moment. Dude, Double Dragon, the amount of money I pumped into Double Dragon at the New Jersey Shore, just like $2 every day, but never getting far enough because I just didn't have the cash at the time to try and beat Double Dragon. I would have walked over there with like eight pounds worth of quarters. I would have had to waddle into that place if I was going to end Double Dragon. Uh, um, I've, I've gotten waves for dinner twice, by the way. Rob, this has been a, a joy. Thank you so much for... <laughs> for having me where uh, can esteemed audience find you online and instagram and all that good stuff yes um 
the the Instagram is uh, at leo.inventor.extraordinaire, which uh, will have the illustrations that are in the book and then uh, also the illustrations or the, the paintings or the piece of art that inspired it and kind of explain how they connect uh, back to the puzzles in the book. I'm hoping people can uh, get on there and if they have any questions about uh, how the puzzles were constructed or like what I was thinking about and how I hope they see it link back. Uh, it's all kind of explained there. And uh, you really don't want to spend any time on my Twitter because it's a lot of comedy writers. <laughs> a lot of, there's, you know, eh. uh, it's at Luke X Cunningham on Twitter. And uh, uh, yeah, the jokes are all, they're all PG-13 at most on Sounds like a delight. I'm, I'm going to follow you immediately yep. after this. All right. Audience at middlegradeninja.com. Download your free copy of Vanica Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week. Luke, enjoy your dinner, and thank you thank so much you, for man. your time.